Hello. Welcome, everybody. This is another episode of Vig and Juice. Glad that you're listening in. I'm Kevin. With me today are Blakely Hart. Blake, how you doing? Doing well. How are you doing, Kevin? Doing good. Thank you. Good. And Radney, Radwood, out of our Austin office. Rad, you there? Yeah, I'm here. How y'all doing? Doing great, man. So it's been a while since we've done one of these things. We probably don't need to say exactly how long. We just got busy and there's a lot going on. So for those of you who have listened before, might be listening for the first time, the point of Big and Juice is to talk about the legal side of sports gambling, or really just the laws and the legal influences around sports betting and other similar contests. And what we actually want to talk about today was DFS, daily fantasy sports, which are competing and some of the games are getting very creative and arguably competing with sports betting type plays. So I just want to do a check-in on DFS and see what the landscape looks like and how it's shifted over the last year or two, because there's been a lot of movement. So let's just start with the opening statement. Blakely, I'll go to you first. What are your thoughts on DFS? What are my thoughts on DFS? I think that it is very interesting how as sports wagering is being passed in more and more states that we're seeing the big players in fantasy move over to sports betting and kind of take an opposite position and more anti, you know, like fantasy position as they move into sports betting. Very different than what they were saying years ago. Yeah, we should definitely talk about that a little bit. Rad, what are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, fantasy's always had this really unique space in the hearts and minds of Americans. And obviously, I think if you look at the history of fantasy and the history of the legalization of sports betting, fantasy is definitely the thing that I believe kind of led to an opening and a cultural acceptance around these types of getting more involved in sports in a way that isn't just like watching. And I think people saw and that people were playing fantasy and then playing daily fantasy and that toehold opened up maybe a more acceptance around, hey, elements of skills in these games. And I think as attorneys that the difference between fantasy and sports betting turns on this concept of skill versus chance and the number of different kind of fantasy or sports betting operators that come over to us and say, hey, I got this game who's a game of skill. And we have to say, yeah, it might be, but it fits very squarely under sports betting. And if sports betting doesn't say whether or not it's skill or chance based, it's just wagering on sports. So I think there could be contests that in theory have a ton of skill in them, but if they're not crafted under the guidelines of what is acceptable fantasy, you kind of get pigeonholed unfairly in some ways, I would say, just under sports betting. But I think my thoughts on it are it's an ever evolving industry that is related, but very different in a lot of ways from sports betting. And yeah, there seems to be in some ways, as Blake mentioned, emerging. There are those that are in the space that are going over the other side. There are those that are offering contests. Kevin, as you mentioned, that maybe seem more similar in certain aspects, but still maintain those kind of core principles of fantasy. So it's you know, it's kind of the Wild West still. I know there's been so much more regulation and it's different than when we were having these discussions five years ago, but there's still so much we're discovering and figuring out as lawyers and legislatures and gaming commissioners. It's still very new as people continue to analyze it. So to help frame our discussion for today, I want to talk a little bit about Blake's point where she said it's interesting that the companies that really led the DFS movement are now out of it. So I saw this stat earlier today, guys. There's four companies that have 86% market share of the U.S. betting market. Four of them. You guys want to guess who those four companies are? Yeah. So we're talking 
Sports betting? Valleys is not in the top four. BetMGM. BetMGM is one. Good point. Caesars. Caesars is two. Yeah. FanDuel. 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 Go. So that's the top four. Now, Blakely, I know you have all those downloaded on your phone, and that's why it's so easy for you to access those. (laughs) But look, those big four. So you've got FanDuel and DraftKings alongside these giants that have just been there, right? Caesars and BetMGM. I mean, MGM owns, I feel like, half the properties on the strip, and then Caesars owns the other half. So it's just interesting at how quickly FanDuel and DraftKings. And then if you get to the second tier, it's Barstool which wasn't even a company 10 years yeah. ago, seven, eight years ago. Points Bet, which is just a new entrant in the US, and then Bet River, which is a little bit of a legacy company. And then you've got a bunch of smaller ones who are up and coming. But Blake's first point about FanDuel and DraftKings, I mean, what is their interest, right? I don't have data for market share for DFS, but I'm pretty sure FanDuel and DraftKings are dominating that as well. But I don't know how interested they are in that. And so now let's get into the legal side of legislation part. As Blake was mentioned, it almost seems like in some instances, FanDuel and DraftKings are anti-fantasy, arguably, in some states because they don't want more creative or non-traditional types of fantasy games to be in those states. They would rather have those games be regulated as Sports betting, which makes sense because sports betting is more expensive. It's harder to get into. There'll be less competition. Well, also, as compared to their traditional products, it's against the house if you're sports betting and it's first participant if it's fantasy. So let's go to that point because that's something that's been top of mind for us for six to nine months now. I'll share that I was talking with someone in this space not too long ago and they're asking how our business is going. I said, well, most of our business these days is updating legal opinions and updating clients on new guidelines, providing guidance to them based on changing laws, Mm -hmm. right? There's not a lot of new laws coming to place, but there's interpretation of laws Mm -hmm. coming in. And the interpretation is interesting because you have these regulatory commissions, the gaming commissions are interpreting it, even though they didn't write it. And then there's updates or amendments to the laws. And then in New York, you've got lawsuits who are trying to help settle a claim. So let's just start there. Let's talk about the shifting landscape of DFS law. So Blakely, you go first. What are we seeing or what are you seeing as far as, let's separate the types of contests. You have your traditional pick a lineup, six players, salary cap, $50,000 salary cap. Everyone understands those. And you have your season-long fantasy. Let's put those on the side. Those are traditional fantasy. We're fine. But the more creative games, the house-based games, the prop-style games, the player-v-player type games, what do you see in there with the law? I guess first and foremost, more recently what I'm seeing is I'm seeing sports wagering laws being passed that have some sort of mention of fantasy in it. And these are even in states that don't have fantasy law. And so that in and of itself, it's been in these states that we've considered them areas that are unregulated. It's kind of a wild, wild west. You're there. They haven't said that you have to get out. There have been different opinions, whether from attorney generals or people having their opinion on whether fantasy is legal or not. But then we're having sports wagering law exclude fantasy from the definition of sports betting. And so that in and of itself is saying, okay, it doesn't have its own set of regulations or rules, but we're telling you right now that it's not betting. And so that's a little bit of comfort, for lack of a better term, for the operators in these states that they haven't had issues thus far, but it answers it in a way. That is one of the bigger things that I've been seeing for those games. Another is just educating regulators, I think. When these more creative games come up, having to have conversations, and a lot of the time they know what betting is, they know what traditional fantasy is, 
but then they have something creative. It seems to fit the mold of fantasy, but it doesn't look like fantasy. And so having these conversations with regulators regularly to try to explain to them how this works in certain situations, it's successful and certain it's not. But yeah, a lot of education there. Brad, what do you think? As we call these kind of creative games, it's a very interesting time for them, right? Obviously, we're having conversations with regulators. You're seeing certain states maybe take a more aggressive position against it. But at the end of the day, you know, Blakely brought up an interesting point about fantasy being sometimes being viewed as participant versus participant. And these, I'm not even going to call them new games because they've been around for years now, but these more creative, unique styles that weren't traditional fantasy or are hybrids of traditional fantasy they allowed players to play against that score or play against a set lineup that was already there, kind of pre-chosen by the operator, right? And so some people call them house games, some people call them single player games, but this style of contest that's been around and there is this kind of assumption by some that if it's two players playing against each other, somehow more skill. And I think that comes from the idea, well, one player is always going to win, right? So it's better than no players winning. I find that very interesting and not a very in-depth view of how these games work, right? When we get into conversations with operators that have these more nuanced games, oftentimes the rate of participant winning is significantly higher than what you get with DraftKings and FanDuel. I think it's like 15% or something like that actually win at DraftKings and FanDuel. And that's because, yeah, it's player versus player and they do their best in regulators to say, hey, the best players can't pick on the little guys. But in the end, there's a lot of that still going on. And just because you have two people going against each other doesn't mean it's a game of skill, right? We've seen that with the rise of some of these sports betting platforms that claim to be fantasy or claim to be games of skill just because they're putting two different people against each other. Hey, Kev, you take the Cowboys and I'll take the Bills when they play each other. And that's not betting somehow because the house isn't involved. They just set us up. You know, that's a ridiculous argument that I don't know how it's gotten as far as it has, but that has no value. That's still sports betting. And just because you and I are betting doesn't mean that it's automatically a game of skill. I mean, the house, all the house does is just take enough bets on each side. So they're essentially doing what you and I just did there, which is they take their VIG and then we bet, right? Because they had you taking the Cowboys and me taking the bills even though it wasn't against each other. So there's no real difference. And so this idea that somehow participants against each other automatically makes a game more skillful, I'm not persuaded by it, right? And that's partly because I write opinion letters outside of fantasy for skill games that involve single player. And there's plenty of games out there, whether it's Solitaire or Tetris or something like that, where there's a set game of rules that you're playing against that are single player, that there's still skill involved. So I think there needs to be, as regulators look at this and continue on, there needs to be a more nuanced understanding. Like fantasy is considered a game of skill. That's why it's not sports betting. And what does that mean under those state laws? Mostly states follow the dominant factor test, which is the US test, right? So what does that mean? And that could mean a game where there is just a single player playing, whether that's against a preset score or preset lineup or whatever. And that is not materially different than the traditional fantasy in a lot of ways. And in some ways can actually reward more players. And like I said, we have people that we've talked to where their participants are highly more successful than these traditional sports or traditional DFS games. Boy, we could really talk a long time about this, about what was the intent of the legislators. And then they've kind of worked themselves into, a, let's just call it a pretzel, that they can't undo because 
like you said, Rad, we can prove, we can use data to prove that these player versus house games require more skill or the same amount of skills, which traditionally used for DFS games, but because it's house-based and because of this legacy bias towards house always meaning a casino, then a lot of the enforcement agencies, the gaming commissions, the regulators, they just want to say, well, that must be sports betting. So it's an uphill battle because we can only do so much, right, as the lawyers trying to convince these enforcement agencies of that. But there's definitely data out there to demonstrate that these more creative games, the player versus house games, are more skill-based. And then, like you mentioned, they allow for more money back to the players, back to the contestants. So just to make sure everyone's on the same page, currently DFS is regulated in 26 states plus D.C. So there's 27 jurisdictions. And Blakely has been pushing us to use the word regulated instead of legislating. You know, for a long time, the way we would go talk about this is, well, DFS is legislated in this many states. And if you go to the websites out there that track these things, DFS is legislated in this many states. But legislated isn't necessarily the right word because it's regulated in a number of states through different means. Blakely already mentioned that some of the sports betting bills mention fantasy sports. So even though fantasy sports aren't specifically legislated in those states, they're now mentioned and they're arguably regulated because they're being mentioned in these statutes. And then it's unregulated in 19 states, unregulated but deemed to be allowed, right? Most major operators are operating these 19 other states. And then you've got five states where it's specifically excluded. Blakely, you already touched on what you're seeing from a regulated standpoint. What do you think is going to play out for these states that are mentioning fantasy sports in a bill or in a statute, but then have no other statute governing how fantasy sports actually should be played or licensed in their state? What do you think is going to happen here? I guess right now I would would look to like, I think it was Wyoming is an example of a state that has sports betting legislation, mentions fantasy in it. Not only, I believe it defines it, it excludes it from the definition of sports betting, but then it also grants the same regulatory agency that is regulating sports betting the authority to regulate fantasy sports. Now, they haven't put out any regulations, but the authority is there. And so I think that right now, I I talked to a regulator at the office about it, just trying to get an idea of what's allowed, what's not allowed while we were working on a deal. And the regulator basically kind of called out these games that we're talking about that are more creative and said, you know, fantasy is okay. We're just going to let it do its thing right now while we're focused on sports betting. But we have seen these games out there that aren't allowed and was talking about cracking down on them. And so we've seen that in a couple of other states, too, where as sports betting becomes more and more prevalent, the regulators are also looking at what could be interpreted as sports betting and saying, hey, like, you're supposed to be licensed or you're supposed to be regulated. And so the magnifying glass, I think, is back on as there's offices regulating sports betting because they have an interest in making sure that everyone's licensed. And I think that's difficult because if the office is regulating sports betting, they're going to be used to sports betting. Those offices are motivated to have actual licensed sports betting companies because they pay taxes, they pay fees, right? And those agencies want to make sure that anyone who's not licensed or regulated is not operating because then they're going to get an earful from the ones who are licensed and who are lawfully operating, who are paying to do so. So you've got these kind of divergent interests, but like you mentioned, Blakely, the way the law is written, it's almost, I don't know, negligence, a strong word, lazy, maybe, to go and mention fantasy sports, but then not really flesh that out as to what exactly that means. Radney, let's talk for a sec about New York 
and what's going on. You want to give a synopsis? Can you do a five years of New York lawsuit in two minutes here? Yeah, sure. So in New York, you had, I guess, in 20, man, was it 15 or 16? It's been so long. Essentially, you had an AG opinion that came out and said that DraftKings and FanDuel first movers, traditional DFS was sports betting under New York law. And then you had the AG seek to enforce that. And that caused all types of troubles. And there was negotiations and whatnot until the New York legislature, I believe in 2016, passed a DFS law, right? They call it IFS, like Interactive Fantasy Sports. And so they passed the law that said that we are exempting this type of contest from sports betting. We don't think it's sports betting. It's a game of skill and we're going to regulate it. And in doing so in that law, they allowed for, I believe it was 14 operators or whoever had been operating in the state at the time of the legislation being passed these folks, if they applied, would be given essentially a temporary license until the New York State Gaming Commission came up with regulations to regulate the contest and come up with what the application process would be like. Well, soon thereafter, that legislation is passed. A group that is against sports betting filed a lawsuit against the state, against Andrew Cuomo, the governor at the time, and said, look, this is sports betting. Now, a judge sitting, they call it the Supreme Court in New York at the trial level. The trial level court had a guy who, I don't believe he's a new judge, but he, he wasn't like a full-time judge. He was like a part-time guy. He comes in and he says, yeah, I agree with the plaintiff. This is not legal. This is sports betting and said, New York doesn't follow the dominant factor test, follows the material element test. And under that, this is sports betting, but you know, the legislature can decide what's legal and what's not legal in terms of criminal. So what they did was they said, the law is unconstitutional as to saying that fantasy is not gambling because it is, but the legislature had the power to decriminalize it. So then all of a sudden you had this year long window, obviously it's appealed immediately, but where the only court that's interpreted it is essentially said, fantasy is gambling and so it's illegal, but the legislature said you won't be prosecuted for doing it. So there's this funny little in-between. Then the in-between, the first you know appeals court that hears it says, actually the whole thing's illegal, material elements, the right test, and fantasy is gambling. It's not legal in New York state. And by the way, this whole thing that the trial judge did doesn't make sense. The whole thing struck down, you know, operators shouldn't be operating here. Well, that's again appealed. And then on appeal to the court of appeals, which is the highest court in New York, that court looked at it. And I think rightfully so, if you looked at the case law, I think it was a pretty clear error by the two lower judges. New York follows the dominant factor test and it has since the early 1900s. And the introduction of the material element test was a legislative thing that occurred, I believe in the 1960s when they passed their current criminal code that addressed these issues of sports betting and gambling in New York state. And so just because one legislature in the 1960s decided to use the material element test doesn't mean that's automatically your test when your highest court, you know, 50, 60 years earlier had applied the dominant factor test. So applying that test, which is for those listening, the dominant factor test is the easiest test to pass. So if you think of skill and what's betting versus what is legal, the game of skill, the test essentially says it's only illegal and gambling if 51% of the outcome is chance. So if chance is 51%, which means it causes the outcome, then it's chance. Just that 1% more, you get 49% chance in the game, but if 51% of that is skill, then we consider it to be a skill game. And so the majority of states in the US follow this test. It's actually called the American test because the UK follows 
I believe the any chance test was like the traditional UK test. And so our test is the easier one. And so New York does follow that. The highest court has unequivocally said that. And in doing so, they upheld the statute and said, hey, IFS is legal in New York. And so now we have a legal statute, but we still don't have regulations, right? So the Gaming Commission has proposed some, they have not yet been adopted. So we have this limbo still where there's 14 operators that have been operating for six years while the rest of the fantasy world is essentially locked out because of New York essentially violating their rights by not doing the one thing they were supposed to do, which was pass these regulations. It's been crazy. We know so many operators have been ill-affected. Like you said, constitutionally, who knows if that's even legal for New York to keep out all these other operators. So that's just one state. There are other issues going on in other states, but I think New York's probably been the loudest or the most difficult one. Let's start to wrap this up. I'm going to ask you guys for your short-term predictions on what happens with DFS and these more creative games, right? The non-traditional DFS games, the single-player games, the house-based games. I'll start to give you guys a chance to think through it. I think we're going to get into a lobbying battle. And I think this FanDuel and DraftKings like DFS because it is a gateway for sports betting. It's a way to go and grab customers. And I think a lot of the betting operators are looking at DFS as a customer acquisition tool. DFS we just talked about is allowed in 46 different jurisdictions, 45 states plus DC, where sports betting's in 14, I think right now, 14 that might have passed legislation or somewhere around there. And there's more of them coming every day, but 14 is a long way from 46. So if you can have DFS presence in 46 states, it makes your marketing easier because your marketing can be nationwide, things like that. And then you have a customer acquisition funnel for sports betting. So I think companies like FanDuel and DraftKings, and I think Caesars and BetMGM, these other players, will also look to go build or buy smaller DFS operators so they can use it for customer acquisition. And they're going to want a definitive line between daily fantasy and sports betting. And I have no inside information on this. I think those companies are going to want to make it very clear that there's two types of fantasy. There's season long that people have been playing for 30 years. There's DFS, the way they do it, that people have been doing for seven to 10 years, and that's it. And everything else needs to be sports betting because I think that's their vested interest. That I think you're going to have the larger, more creative types. I'll use Monkey Knife Fight as an example because they've already been acquired by Bally's. Monkey Knife Fight is going to continue to fight to allow their single-player type games because they've already got a lot of marketing dollars and development dollars and R&D and investment behind that. And so I think these two guys are going to go out and get lobbyists and they're going to try and convince different legislatures that DFS means one thing or the other. And that we're using DFS, but really we need to talk about fantasy sports because fantasy sports is what's carved out under UEJA. And we know that we feel comfortable at some of these other games. There's a lot of different types of contests that can be offered under UEJA and they don't have to be traditional season-long fantasy or just traditional DFS. So I think we're going to get into this real political battle and it might get ugly. And it's funny because FanDuel and DraftKings went through the same thing with season-long fantasy sports eight, 10 years ago. And there's been books written about this when they came and said, no, no, look, we're all on the same team. Season-long and daily fantasy sports, we're all the same. So you season-long players, the Yahoos and the ESPNs and the CBS, you guys have been here forever, fight with us. Like, let's go fight. And now they want to go and say, well, yeah, there's a clear line right after where we are. There's a very clear line right after that. And those people are not fantasy sports and they should not be allowed 
under UEGA. So that's what I think is going to come in the next year. It's going to be really interesting to watch. And for our operator clients that are out there, you just got to keep your ear on the ground as far as what's happening on a state-by-state basis. It's fast, it's furious. There's a lot going on. So just make sure you're keeping up with the new interpretations or enforcements. I will note that in our experience, most states are pretty open to a conversation. Hey, is our game legal? If they say we want to review your game, have that conversation with them. And most states are willing to talk to you about it. So those are my thoughts. Blakely, you want to go next? I definitely think that there's going to be some sort of fight here. I would like to see some sort of federal opinion on this. I think that if someone took it all the way up to, you know, let's see what the Supreme Court really thinks that UEGA says or Mm -hmm. is meant to allow, I think that that would just make things clear because it's dangerous to be operating. Mm. You're potentially going to be labeled a sports betting company, and then that's criminal. That's Mm. tens of thousands of dollars in penalties, Mm. and it's a criminal offense. So, I mean, you don't want to get stuck there. And so I think that for clarity purposes, that would be nice. But either way, I think it's going to be a fight. We're seeing everything kind of get set up, get teed up for that with these large companies, not only getting sports wagering licenses in states where they can, but then pulling their games that they're going to be trying to say should be included in sports betting in all states except where they have sports Mm -hmm. betting licenses and they're doing that strategically so in some i agree with you okay rad yeah i think it's gonna be an interesting time period i think the battleground is really in the states that are kind of unregulated and as they become regulated states you know what happens there are folks they're helping craft the legislation to make clear that single player games are also allowed versus are they not in those conversations? I think ultimately it's to have some of these statutes construed, whether that's UEGA would be a great one to actually have, whether it's at in the district court level or in a circuit level, have it actually construed as to what language participants, plural, is that really referring to relative knowledge and skill of participants? Does that really mean it has to be multiple people playing? And then obviously at the state level, there's some states that have essentially borrowed UEGA and they also are kind of interpreting it in a way that could be hostile towards single player and like, but that statute itself hasn't been construed. So I think it's a dual thing, right? There are going to be some lobbying and there's going to be some court cases, hopefully that would come out of this that will give more clarity as to what this is. I think maybe there will be a third way. I don't know. I think this is probably the least likely outcome, but I think it's a possibility that these kind of hybrid style games are legislated in their own right as, okay, here's fantasy, here's sports betting, and then here's this like hybrid style, as some people have started to call it, that has elements of both and maybe shouldn't be under the full taxes and licensing you see at the sports betting level, but maybe isn't under the same regime as traditional fantasy. So I think it's kind of a wait and see. I don't really know where it's going to come out, but I think it's going to be interesting to see how courts and regulators proceed. Yeah, I like that, right? I like that thought of a third category. So I'll end with just to understand how much confusion there's in the space, we can't even get a line on whether it's UEJA or UEGA. <laughs> and that's not anything that I think we need to change. That's in the industry, people call it both ways. No one's ever really come out and definitively defined it. And I think that's a great metaphor for what's really going on in the space is we think we know what fantasy sports is, but no one has really come out and defined it. I'm just going to start spelling it out, which I think is a great metaphor for what should happen. Hey, that's exactly right. Everyone should just spell out the law, <laughs> spell out what it really means. So that's a quick update on where we are with DFS. We'll resume a history of sports betting laws in our next episode of Vig and Juice. Really appreciate you coming by and listening. Make sure you check out our other podcasts at velawoodlaw.com forward slash 
podcasts. We'd appreciate you checking those out and giving us a review. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. The Velawood podcasts are recorded with the help of Radio MD based in Chicago, Illinois. You can find all of our podcasts on our website at velawoodlaw.com slash podcasts. For questions, comments, or suggestions, email us at podcasts at velawoodlaw.com.